This is the Behave Yourself podcast, a podcast about behavioral science in the global south brought to you by the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. I'm your host, Linda Kimaru. This is the second part of our conversation on this year's theme at the Geneva Peace Week, which broadly seeks to answer this one question. How can peace builders unify to successfully build peace in a divided world? In the first part of this series, we met Dan. Uh, so my name is Dan Schreiber. I'm a crisis and fragility advisor at OECD. Um, my main role is to support the work of the International Network on Conflict and Fragility and its related broad agenda for policy and action in emergencies and fragile situations. Um, so and Salim. Hi everyone, my name is Salim Combo. I am an associate at the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. Um, my role within Busara is really to support the design and development of research and advisory projects, specifically working to apply behavioral science towards poverty alleviation in the Global South, which is Busara's mission. Together with our qualitative researcher, Amy, they explored the recently released OECD flagship publication, States of Fragility. Find a link to that episode in the show notes. Welcome to this episode of Behave Yourself, part two of how behavioral science can help us think differently about fragility. So today we're going to continue the conversation of how behavioral science can help bridge the gap between high-level analysis and local action to build peace, counter fragility, and increase resilience. We will do this by moving through the Fit for Fragility report with a behavioral science perspective. So Dan, in your chapter in the State of Fragility Project, you discuss adaptive management. Can you break down for our listeners what this actually means and give us an example of a country where you've seen this play out? I think um, the key elements that that should be stressed about adaptive management are the the ability to learn uh, as you go and to adapt to the changing context. Um, what we are seeing in many in many uh, contexts where um, uh, that, that that are prone to uh, uh, being af- affected by drivers of, uh, of fragility is um, is a very complex environment and a lot of volatility, and that also basically requires being able to uh, analyze the situation not as a static reality, but rather as an ongoing process. And uh, that means you learn while you're doing and uh, and programming becomes an iterative process where instead of taking uh, the the reality that you have as the starting point and a specific goal you set as your your finality, rather than that, uh, you... Uh, you try to to learn from uh, from what you're doing, and sometimes you need to readjust your own expectations about mm-hmm. what you're working towards. So um, this can translate in a lot of different elements of programming, whether it's goal setting, uh, uh, analysis of the context, or the way you're you're behaving and working in your daily in your daily reality. Um, The difficulty that we see is that when it comes to international actors, uh, often they are constrained also by by much more rigid 
structures, processes, mechanisms um, that basically constrain their in the, in them in their abil ability to adjust and adapt as they go. There is often, uh, especially in the development world, uh, a need also to produce, to disperse, a need to produce results and to, to, to deliver against set objectives uh, that sometimes uh, were set five years ago. So in a reality where uh, things can change on a daily basis, this type of, uh, of project management uh, creates a lot of complexity uh, in, a, in, in the day-to-day -day reality of implementing actors and of, uh, and of uh, financing partners, uh, as well, of course, as, uh, as the national stakeholders themselves. So the type of flexibility that is required in order to make adaptive programming works is something that needs to be reflected in the whole chain of uh, in the whole value chain, basically, of, uh, of the organization at the back office level. Uh, this is what we saw in, uh, in basically all the contexts where we conducted field studies in the context of this project. Thanks, Dan. Um, I'm hearing you saying that, you know, development program cycles are often fixed in time and are often tied to set objectives, which doesn't account for how the broader landscape might change and thus our expectations and our ways of working need to change with them. This also makes me think about time more generally. Time we think is such an interesting factor and a challenge for adaptive management. Often there's this tension between the need to show results like you're saying, and also having the patience to understand that real true change takes time. So it seems that these implementers are under this pressure to show that their project is working and prioritize quick results over actual long-term sustained change. So from a behavioral perspective, Salim, to us, I think this seems a bit misaligned. Um, how do you think that behavioral insights can support adaptive management to deal with this tension to show quick results? So I think firstly, it's really important to say that um, adaptive management really is crucial um, when it comes to being able to operate effectively in fragile contexts, um, specifically when it comes to being able to um, respond to emergent needs, just to echo um, like what Dan said, these are often complex environments um, where there's lots of volatility and very few things are static. Um, so it's also important in this context to also recognize that time horizons also and salience, um, they can also influence how people respond to crises. So one of the important insights from behavioral science is the understanding that time horizons themselves also affect decision making. So people tend to have a strong preference for smaller short-term short benefits over um, longer um, longer term goals, which may actually even be larger. And this is a concept that um, we commonly refer to as hyperbolic discounting. So maybe just like a, a simpler example of it is if you think about a choice that you would give most people of choosing either between a $50 payout immediately or a $100 payout um, in six months time, most people would pick the $50 immediately. Um, so the challenge really is, um, in, in donor strategies is therefore, how do we incentivize the allocation of resources towards long-term development um, initiatives, 
which could actually have bigger benefits over the short-term relief-oriented efforts that a lot of the resources are currently targeting towards, especially in um, post-conflict states where it's no longer an immediate need um, to have interventions to stabilize. And in some contexts, it can even lead to um, countries that are able to successfully stabilize, perceiving that they've actually been punished by the international community. Um, because resources are then like shifted away towards other more pressing needs. Um, so this is, uh, this is a point that's really poignantly brought out in the Liberia case study in the Fit for Fragility uh, report, which I'm sure Dan could speak a lot more about that than I can. And another interesting element of time is really when you think about um, um, the international cooperation, um, like uh, cooperation at the international level. Um, so work that has been done by Krebs and Rapport in their paper on uh, international relations and the psychology of time horizons. One of the things that they identify is that countries that have short, short time horizons, they tend to get stuck in the nitty gritty of implementation when they're actually negotiating agreements. And this often leads to them failing to actually reach an agreement um, on what they're, what they're um, negotiating. While on the other hand, countries that have these longer term aspirational goals, they tend to go for much looser agreements um, in the hope that these details will iron themselves out further down the line. And they actually often end up being more successful at negotiating agreements. Dan, has this been your experience as well? Yes, absolutely. I think, um, I think Salim is raising a, uh, a very valid point in this regard, and uh, I must say that it, um, it also dovetails with another element that we highlight in the report, which is often uh, for, for numerous reasons, the preference indeed is to look at uh, short-term activities as a way to basically manage the uncertainty of the environment. But the tendency to do so uh, often goes at the expense of developing a theory of change and a long-term vision of what one uh, wants to achieve. And this also means basically that we get stuck in, uh, in short-term uh, project management and programming and lose sight of towards what we're trying to move. Um, so it has, uh, it has a clear link with uh, adaptive programming, but what it also means is there is no exit strategy anymore. There is no vision, vision anymore for what we're trying to, to achieve. And in any context, the exit strategy also goes through empowering and capacitating the national stakeholders. Um, so if, you are, uh, if you're trying to go, I mean, you, you know that, uh, that formula, if you, you're trying to go fast, go alone, and if you're trying to, uh, uh, actually, I, I don't remember the exact formula, but everybody knows. Go far, go together. Exactly, and you and so uh, and so that idea, that idea that if you if you want to get farther, you need this this relationship of trust. You need those partnerships, and you need to ensure basically that you create, um, I mean, durable, uh, genuine, common working objectives with a clear vision of where you want to go together. Uh, those are things that get lost when you are pressed for time, uh, you're pressed for uh, uh, showing results, basically lose sight of, uh, of those, those longer term objectives. 
I hear you that when we're pressed for time and when we're steeped in uncertainty, we lose sight of trust and these exit strategies that tend to build capacity of national stakeholders and local actors. Um, Salim, when you read the Fit for Fragility chapter, were there particular areas where you thought, hmm, maybe a behavioral perspective could really change how these challenges are tackled? Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think the area in particular where there could be a huge shift in how um, a behavioral perspective can shed light on a new, um, a new concept could be um, the social contract, which is the relationship of give and take um, that exists between the state and society. So the prevailing thinking really tends to be that in fragile settings, this, um, this social contract is actually broken and it needs to be built on the provision of services. However, a number of prominent scholars in the field, such as uh, Claire McCaughlin, um, Elfie McCulloch, Jonathan Papalidis, and uh, Timothy Mitchell, through his work on the state effect, they all argue that this is misguided. And their argument is really that a key element of developing this social contract between people and the state actually depends on how meaningful a particular service is um, for the imagination of what the state is supposed to be. And the concept of salience is really important in this. Um, so salience is a behavioral concept that helps us to understand the mechanisms by which something is or isn't memorable or important. Um, so therefore, the social contract in fragile contexts really needs to be co-created and based on the delivery of services that are actually salient to people. And another interesting application is on the standards of fairness, um, which can differ across contexts, and it can also be impacted by the legacy of conflict and exclusion. So behavioral science can help us to understand the experiences of fairness and how these are institutionalized and even passed down through the generations. Thank you, Sam. I think something that I'm going to hold on to is your definition of salience and how it's the mechanism by which something becomes memorable, but often that is through this process of co-creation. And I think that's something that Busara does really well in grounding our research at the point of our participants and really including our end users from beginning to end. Um, Dan, does this resonate with you? Does it sound right to you? Can behavioral thinking replace old paradigms um, such as good governance? I most definitely think that there are many applications in which uh, indeed behavioral sci science has a lot of relevance uh, in the context of, um, of these projects and of uh, the type of attention we're bringing. Um, to bounce back on, on what Salim was saying uh, as, a, as a starting point, I think that, I mean, we use the term social contract in the document actually, not as uh, an element that uh, that uh, uh, that we critique, but rather as uh, I mean, basically in very much the same type of understanding as what uh, Salim was pointing out. When you go to a place like uh, Bangui uh, in the Central African Republic, or Jamena in uh, in Chad, uh, or many of the other uh, most fragile states. Uh, the multidimensional uh, fragility framework that the OECD uses, what you see is, um, is that very often the relationship between citizens and the state becomes more and more an abstract thing uh, as you move away from uh, 
a, a radius of a few kilometers around uh, the, the presidential palace, basically. Um, and I'm obviously I am a, this is a bit of a caricature, but my point is that uh, between the hinterland and uh, the capital, there is a huge difference in how people perceive the presence of the state and the delivery of basic social services uh, and of security and of uh, uh, and, and, and the rapport they can develop also with, uh, with the state and with uh, the political class. So in that sense, I think, is how we try to use the term of social contract, which to us is an, is an important concept um, because the way we function now is based on a model of substitution to a large extent. But substitution for what? Substitution for, I mean, there needs to be, there needs to be a, a process through which we can replace the type of support provided at this stage via international engagement to local communities. And so uh, for that, you, you do need also to work on aspects of, of state building and of the relationship between the state and its citizens. Um, so I think that for me, that's the element that, uh, that we're trying to capture when we speak about uh, social contract. But I would like to also say that when it comes to, uh, uh, to behavioral science, for me, another key element is the aspect of uh, managing incentives. And I think this translates in a lot of different ways uh, in, uh, in, in how we, uh, we need to, to shift the equilibrium to, to better deliver in, uh, in, uh, in fragile and, uh, and crisis-affected countries. Um, you have an issue around how you can maintain and manage uh, the, the, the human resources that you deploy in, in, uh, in those countries and make sure basically that they have the right incentives in order to deliver and that they don't receive and that the message they receive is one that allows for risk-taking, that allows for building relationships of trust with their partners at local level, uh, that allows them to be inventive to be flexible, uh, and that, uh, that also creates uh, a sense of, of, of merit for actually being there, doing the work, and staying engaged. Um, and right now, many of those incentives in the international community are not really working in that sense. But we are seeing a lot of members of the INCAF networks working heavily on this and trying to adjust the way they work. Incentives also translate in the relationship with other partners. And in this regard, often what we, what we put in place are rather um, also disincentives for, for, uh, for work, I mean, for, for, for daring to, uh, to adjust, to adapt, to, uh, to learn. Um, so a lot needs to be, to be done around that. There is also the aspect of corruption and the short-term gains related to, uh, to the way the, uh, the system works and how you can play that system and, uh, and how you can also transform the relationships in order to, to find other benefits that are more related to the common uh, good 
and that are more related to uh, to working together uh, towards a, a shared objective. So in, in all those different facets, I think that we still have a lot to learn probably around the concept of incentives. It's time for a quick break and your behavioral science term of the week. In this episode, you've heard Salim talk about a couple of behavioral science terms, so let's define one of them. He mentioned hyperbolic discounting, which is the tendency of people to choose a smaller reward sooner rather than a larger reward that they'd receive later. Basically, as the saying goes, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Now, back to the episode. Um, Sal, I'm really fascinated about this idea of rupture and repair. And Dan first started talking about this idea of proximity, and then we moved on to incentives. And I'm wondering if you can think of any behavioral mechanisms that we know can better support risk-taking and managing complexity, uh, or or areas in which Busara has been successful in showing um, how incentives can be productive in navigating complex paths. So, yeah, Dan brings up really a lot of um, a lot of important points here, um, especially around like incentives and also the social uh, the social contract, which if you think about it, can also be an incentive in its own kind of form, right? Because um, it's kind of the state bringing an incentive for people to accept its legitimacy, um, if you think about it that way. And we've done like quite a lot of research to try to understand um, risk and time preferences. Um, and both of these are very closely interlinked in a lot of the work that we do. And the research that we've done has been in a number of different areas. Um, so we've looked at like risk-seeking behavior when it comes to health and um, di- different um, behaviors, which there's a lot of findings that are also applicable to the space of, um, of governance as well. So one of the key things that we find is that um, like risk-seeking behavior, it, it tends to differ with different um, demographics as well. So we find that there are certain um, demographic factors which are, um, which are more um, in line with um, more risk-seeking behavior. So we find that younger people are more willing to take risks than older people. Um, but also, I think the, probably the most important finding is the context of scarcity. Um, right? So when we think about a lot of the behavioral science work that is done, um, it's usually done with this population, which we call weird. So they're w- usually Western, educated, industrialized, rich and developed, uh, rich and live in developed countries. And it's not really reflective of like the populations that, that exist in um, the developing world or even in fragile contexts, simply because that element of scarcity isn't really there. And Bussara's research really is focused on trying to understand like the, the effect of scarcity in particular. And what we find is, you know, in situations where there is more scarcity, risk-seeking behavior is definitely a lot higher, um, as we mentioned earlier with um, with uh, prospect theory. So people are more willing to take risks to avoid losses, right? Um, so if you're in a situation where you feel you have no choice or you may end up in a situation where you could lose everything that you have, people are more willing to take risks. Um, and taking those risks can, can take many forms, including violence um, or social upheaval of some sort can be one of, those, um, one of those kinds of risks. Dan, I saw you taking notes. What are you thinking about? Well, first of all, I wrote down the concept of weird, which, uh, which was new to me, and I, uh, I find it very funny. 
I think the idea of, of risk-seeking behavior indeed as, a, as an element that also needs to be taken into account. I mean, Salim mentioned it also from the perspective of basically the, the population in, uh, in, in the countries where, where we operate. But obviously it's also a con con concept that, uh, that is just as relevant also from the perspective of uh, the people engaging in uh, peace building, in uh, uh, development uh, uh, and in humanitarian activities. So in, in, in all those areas, indeed, how you deal with, uh, with risk, I mean, it's not just about risk acceptance. It's also about your, your actual ability, uh, how you're set up. To, to cope with risks in practice. So risk tolerance, that is just as important. And I think, I mean, alongside the behavioral science component, I think organizational uh, setup and, uh, and basically uh, looking at the way organizations function, how they are structured, how both the software and the hardware of the way we, uh, we work uh, is, uh, is, is, uh, is, is set up is of key importance to your, your capacity to deliver. Now, on that latter subject, maybe one, one, one point also to add, it, is, uh, it would be a, a, a quixotic exercise to, uh, to say the, the aid system needs to change. Uh, we need a revolution of, uh, of the system and development cooperation doesn't work and uh, peace building doesn't deliver, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Actually, we see that a lot is taking place that needs to take place, and we see a lot of good examples of things working. Mm. But what we are seeing also is that uh, institutional mechanisms often work against, not in, not in support of the people who come up with creative solutions on the ground. And so, what we need to find is what are the margins of flexibility that do exist in the system to ensure basically that we are as supportive as we can of the needs of local actors to create solutions, to find a way forward. And that space exists. That space needs to be claimed. That space needs to be nurtured by, the, by key decision makers in each organization. And that means also encouraging at headquarters level that people work in support of locally found solutions, that they accept the risks that it implies, that they accept that uh, basically they are there not uh, to control and protect, but rather enable. Obviously, all, those, all the controls and monitoring systems that are in place have a reason for being but we should never lose sight of the ultimate objective of, uh, of development cooperation and why we're engaging in those activities. And often basically it looks as if we are trying to put all the countries of the planet at the same level, as if you can operate in the same way wherever you are located, whether you have roads and electricity, whether you have a stable government, whether you have uh, armed conflict taking place, whether you, whether you have a population that trusts the international community, that trusts its own government, that trusts each other, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So all those different elements 
that are key to delivering need to be taken into account. And this is, I mean, this is the old mantra of, uh, of context specificity that we tend uh, to, uh, to repeat, but that we often forget to implement. Dan, we couldn't have said it better. We hear you and we agree about nurturing these margins of flexibility that exist within the system to do the kind of work in fragile settings that um, include behavioral scientists, that include local level actors and bring them to the fore. So now that we have the new States of Fragility report and Dan's chapter on what it means to be fit for fragility, I'd like to get your thoughts on what stands in the way of implementing better cooperation between international and local actors. I'm suspecting that new approaches require quite substantial shifts on all sides, including behavioral shifts. Even just emphasizing the need for a behavioral perspective is such a huge shift for international actors, donors, and implementers. So Dan, having listened to Salem on some of these behavioral concepts, can you think of some of the behavioral obstacles that international actors have that might stand in the way of better cooperation? I think the topic of the Geneva Peace Week is extremely relevant. Um, I think um, the aspect of trust is a fundamental one. When you operate, especially in a, in a post-conflict setting, but this also applies to many other settings uh, uh, in which fragility also uh, uh, occurs, what you're seeing is um, that basically trust has been broken in some way or another within those social contexts. And so ensuring that there is a recognition for, for that in the first place, and that there is an understanding of what it means also as, an, as the international community for operating and coming in uh, to support in those contexts, I think is a fundamental aspect. We have seen in the context of the Ebola since the West Africa uh, crisis in the uh, Ebola crisis in 2014, 2015, but also in the Congo uh, Ebola outbreaks, the three last ones that occurred over the past uh, couple of years since the West Africa uh, outbreak, that every time where things break down is a matter of trust, is a matter of mutual understanding, is a matter of confidence in the ability of the other to understand your point of view, to understand what you worry about, to understand what you care about. Um, and this is this translates at all levels of society, including in the relationship between partners that need to work together to make things work. So I think that that element of basically understanding that when you come in to provide assistance, you're not an external actor that is basically uh, looking at a Petri dish and trying to introduce new components. No, you're actually part, you're, you're bathing in the very context that you are trying also to, uh, to change. Uh, and, and you become part of that reality as well, I think is a, is a, is a key aspect uh, that needs to be taken into account. From, and from that your presence community. by being there also is actively changing the context too. Absolutely, absolutely. You are also, I mean, you become part of that landscape. You, mm. you become an element and especially also uh, taking into account that many of the current uh, emergency contexts have become protracted emergencies. 
and that fragility almost by definition is also uh, related to long-term vulnerabilities, both of the system and of communities and people. And so that means basically that, that you really need to, to, to understand basically that when you engage, you're not there just for the short term, you're probably there for a while and you need to, and you need to relate to, uh, uh, to that social context and understand your own place in it uh, and understand also how you can both step in but work towards stepping out and what that entails. Thank you so much, Dan, for championing this idea of self-awareness and recognizing that it starts with owning our role in breaking trust and what that means in how we communicate with each other and how we rebuild confidence in listening and understanding each other. Salem, what do you see as behavioral mechanisms that might help in addressing some of these obstacles and repairing trust in building collaborative efforts between international and national actors? So I think more research is definitely required on the behavioral drivers of peace building and fragile contexts, um, especially when it comes to developing new perspectives on, among other things, the impact of conflict on decision-making in these contexts. So for instance, um, one study on ex-combatants by Guy Grossman um, finds that people with military experience are actually less willing to negotiate with rivals, um, while the paper by Horowitz and Stam finds that they're also less willing to start conflict themselves. Um, so the question here is whether this is actually universal, given that um, a lot of these studies are conducted with um, populations that aren't actually reflective of the conflict dynamics in um, many of these fragile states that we're talking about. So research is also needed when it comes to better understanding the values as well of people in context of fragility. So for instance, a, um, a concept that has been gaining a lot of prominence in recent years is a moral foundations theory, which is um, a theory that was developed by the psychologist um, Jonathan Haidt. And it seeks to identify the innate um, foundations or axioms of um, human moral reasoning. And these are based on um, five foundations, which are care or harm, um, fairness or cheating, uh, loyalty or betrayal, authority or subversion, and sanctity or degradation. So this theory basically posits that all, moral, all morality can be broken down to different, different um, points of the spectrum of these five things. Um, however, the research on these foundations is really lacking in the developing world um, and in fragile um, countries in particular. And Busar is currently trying to fill this knowledge gap uh, with research that it's conducting on the moral foundations theory in, um, in East Africa. Allow me, Amy, to, to first bounce back yeah. on something else uh, Salim said, because I think um, that one element that really resonates with me as well is the role of behavioral science, not just in understanding um, our, I mean, the decision of key actors, but more also the, the, the decision-making processes of, of populations uh, that, uh, that, that we're uh, working to support. Uh, or to serve. I think um, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, for example, I think some interesting work has been done over the past years 
uh, in looking at how uh, displaced populations make decisions about what they will do next. Um, I mean, will they, uh, what are their decision drivers uh, for deciding to either move to a new location, to settle where they are, uh, or, to, uh, or, or, or to find uh, stability? And it was found, for example, in that context that security is a, is a key aspect, but so is economic well-being and opportunity and social networks that uh, these people rely on. And those three elements are key in understanding basically in many, in many cases what uh, people will need in order to, to make their decision. This also helps understand as, um, as a, an actor providing services to these people, what can be done to help them. For example, in terms of uh, sharing the information that they need to make uh, an informed decision, but also in terms of helping them find solutions that are in their best interest, rather than being stuck in a suboptimal solution simply because of a lack of information or because of a lack of access to something that can be provided to them. So, so that need also indeed to, to apply behavioral sciences, apply uh, social sciences in general, uh, in understanding basically the, the context in which we operate and to, and, and, and to rely on that type of expertise in contexts where often we have a much more um, limited uh, skill set available is absolutely key. And this also means indeed that, um, that it's important for, um, for uh, international actors operating in those contexts to be set up properly, to be able to draw on this type of expertise through partnerships, through their own civil society in, a, uh, in, in, in their country, through working with academia or with think tanks or with centers like your own in order to ensure basically that this type of expertise can be brought in um, uh, to basically better inform programming. Thanks, Dan. Salam, I want to leave you with the final question. If you were going to give advice to a burgeoning development practitioner or an upcoming humanitarian aid worker who's new to this field and wants to start, you know, thinking a little bit more about behavioral science and incorporating that into their scope of practice, where might one start? I think it should pro they should probably start with an understanding of how really behavior and decision-making influences this whole chain of events that goes, that can take a country from being in a normal stable condition to being a fragile state, but also mm -hmm. the role that behavior change can, for, can play in really reversing this trend. So when you think about um, um, going back to the concept of um, the social contract, being based on um, the provision of services. What we really should acknowledge is that um, the delivery of services are not, are not always um, received universally. So the experience of services is not the same for everyone. And the fact that some 
people are able to re to receive services or perceive their their access to services as being either better or worse than others creates narratives and this can create narratives of either inclusion or exclusion so in societies where there is a narrative of exclusion from being able to access different services it can create feelings of mistrust and alienation and then this leads to the breakdown of the social contract and these these sow the seeds for conflict so understanding how something as small as the perception that people have when they're going to receive a service can lead to something as significant as that is important to take into consideration and also to understand and recognize that there are points in this chain where we can have behavioral interventions that can help to mitigate potential risks and to potentially reverse um, um, potential um, conflict that could arise from, from this situation. Thanks, Salem. I think we'll leave it there. I want to thank both of our guests today, Dan and Salem, for joining me in this conversation about using behavioral insights to co-create and define mutual accountability and peace building. It's been wonderful learning from you. And that brings us to the end of this episode. A huge thanks to Dan Schreiber from OECD for coming on to discuss his chapter in States of Fragility, Fit for Fragility, which we will link in the show notes. And of course, to Salem for his unique behavioral science perspective. Behave Yourself is a production of the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. Find us on Twitter at Busara Center and read more about the work that we do on the Busara blog on Medium. Until next time, remember, behave yourself.